Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, saith the Lord, the Almighty, which is and which was and which is to come. I greet you in that precious name of Jesus, the one who is the faithful witness and the one who calls us to be a witness as well. I invite your attention to Acts chapter, I think it's 26. We've been following the story of the apostles as they've been laying the foundation of the church. For the 2,000 years since then, the faithful followers of Jesus have been building on the work, have been building on the foundation that the apostles had laid. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet speaks of four great kingdoms that were to exercise their power and influence across the face of the earth. First it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans. And then he, he, he speaks of them as great beasts that would arise out of the earth. In the one vision, he has these four beasts that come up out of the sea, but he also speaks of them as arising out of the earth. And the first kingdom arises out of the earth, and it enjoys its time in the sun for a while, and then another kingdom arises out of the earth, and it subdues the first. And it has its time. And this is repeated four times, but the fourth is somewhat unique, because... It isn't so much conquered by another kingdom that arises out of the earth. It's conquered by a kingdom that comes from heaven. It's subdued by a kingdom that has other world and heavenly origins. And this fourth kingdom makes war. This fourth kingdom, which is Rome, makes war with the saints. And it prevails against them. And it has this measure of success in defeating them. But it's only a time, as the prophet Daniel writes, until the Ancient of Days comes. And the tide turns, and the saints possess the kingdom. Now, in contrast to the kingdoms that arise from the earth, that have their time in the sun, and then they fade away, the kingdom that comes from heaven is never subdued by any other. And this is the kingdom that's established here in the story of the book of Acts. This kingdom is conceived by the death and resurrection of Christ. It is born at Pentecost when the power of an endless life is poured out on the believers. God makes his dwelling place, his tabernacle on earth with his people. And the world is a different place for what has happened then. Countless individuals have found peace in the present and have found hope for the future. Millions have been changed from living 
a life of sin and for the flesh and for the moment dictated by the whims of desire and passion to living for the good of others. Untold numbers have been delivered from the power of sin to living a life that has been worthwhile and pleasing to God. And all those who repent from their sins, our brother mentioned this morning, he asked us what the, what the church is. I had to think of our confession of faith says the church of Christ is all those who have truly repented, have rightly believed, have been rightly baptized, are united with the saints on earth and have their names written in heaven. All of those consist of the body of Christ. And all of these are a witness to the transforming power of Christ. And the book of Acts that we have been looking at is the record of how all of this began. We've considered Acts 1, 7 and 8 as an outline for the study in this book. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the seasons, the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And we looked at the birth of the church at Pentecost. We followed Peter and John through the temple and heard them preach to the Jewish authorities. And we considered that immoral proclamation we ought to obey God rather than men. We traveled with a zealous Pharisee named Saul down the Damascus Road and witnessed how God changed him from being an injurious and blasphemer and persecuting the church into a blessing to the believers. And we saw the Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles and learned how that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted with him. And we saw the church struggle with the implications of that. But accepting the fact that God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That, to us who are Gentiles, should be thrilling. And I, I think I think that the um, Ethiopian uh, eunuch and Cornelius should be among the heroes in our minds. And we followed that same Saul who is now known as the great apostle Paul, on three different missionary journeys to the Gentiles. And he established churches both in Asia and in Europe. And we heard him preach to the common people and before kings and before governors. Some, some audiences were hostile and some were receptive. In the last sermon we had looked at, this was my last sermon, we had looked at Paul's address to Felix and his wife Drusilla. And Felix's unfortunate response and all too common response of maybe sometime, just not now. And I hope that's never any of our response when God calls. And two years later, there was a man named Festus was put into Felix's place. And to pacify the Jews, he kept Paul bound. 
And because the Jews had kept accusing Paul before the Roman rulers of disrupting the peace, he eventually, Paul eventually appeals to Caesar. Now, from what I could tell, the Caesar of that time was Nero. He was the emperor in Rome. In Acts 25, verse 21, he's referred to as Augustus. And I think the reason for that is because Nero's full name, from what I could find, was Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. So that was his name. So you could refer to him as Nero. You could refer to him as, as, um, as Augustus, as the scripture does. But as far as I know, it was Nero, that infamous character of the Roman emperor. But his appeal to Caesar sets Paul on a course that we eventually lead him to Rome. Now, we think that American politics are complicated at times. There are politics at local levels. There's politics at state levels. And there's politics at federal levels. And then there's all the international diplomacy to consider. There are Democrats and there's Republicans and there's left wing and and right wing. And there's the whole uh, continuum in between those poles and It seems that the extremes of each side are getting more and more extreme. But I don't think that the political landscape of our day is anywhere as complicated as it was in this setting. The Romans essentially ruled the world, but they allowed the different jurisdictions some freedom to run their own little countries to rule themselves to some extent. So the Herods that we read about in Scripture were Jewish kings, kings if you please, not as emperors but as local rulers. And they functioned within the bounds of Roman authority. They had some authority, but they were under Roman rule. And so think about this. Here was a Jewish king under Roman rule. So he was kind of making friends with the Romans, exercising power over the Jews and so the Jews regarded him as a I'm sorry the the Romans regarded him as a pawn and the Jews regarded him as a sell out to the Romans and so they were hated both directions and the character we were introduced to in chapter 25 verse 13 was one of the Herods his name was Agrippa King Agrippa and it seems he's on friendly terms with the Roman governor Festus So he comes to Caesarea to pay respects to Festus, who was the Roman ruler. And while he and his wife, uh, what was Agrippa's wife's name? For some reason I can't remember right now. At any rate, Agrippa and his wife, Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice went down to Caesarea to pay their respects to Herod. And Festus has Paul appear before them. Festus is a Roman ruler, and Agrippa is the Jewish king. Festus had honored Paul's appeal to the emperor. All right, Paul had appealed to the emperor Nero, but Festus thought it was kind of irresponsible to send this prisoner, Paul, to Nero without having an accusation written to accompany Paul. So he thought King Agrippa, who was a Jew, could help him write this accusation against Paul to send along with Paul to the emperor. And so that's the setting of the story. 
I don't know how much of this we should read. I think we'll read a bit of it. And this is Paul's defense. Chapter 26, verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from, among, from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am in judge for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. Being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me, and when they were all when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness and light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he spake thus for himself, Festus, that's the Roman fellow, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king, he's referring now to, <clears throat> he's referring now to Agrippa, for the king knoweth of these things before whom I also speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all those that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king arose and the governor and Bernice and, this, and they that sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy 
of death or bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. So Herod, Herod Agrippa invites Paul to speak. And because he's speaking as a Jew, Paul defends himself from a Jewish standpoint. He says it's not because of any violation of the law that he's accused, but because he affirms the hope of Israel. He rehearses his own history and how he persecuted the, the saints. And he tells the king of his conversion on the road to Damascus. He tells them how he's been preaching <clears throat> and uh, to the Jews and the Gentiles. He's been, repeat, he's been preaching repentance and how that the people should believe and that they should do the works, do the things that are fitting to repentance. Works meet for repentance. He says that it's by the help of God that he's preaching. And he's only preaching what Moses and the prophets said would come, that Jesus would suffer and die, and that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would be a light both to Jews and Gentiles. And so to the Roman governor, this is all nonsense. He says, much learning doth make thee mad. Uh, he says, uh, your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul says that he speaks forth the words of truth and soberness. And he turns to King Agrippa, the, the Jewish Herod, the Jewish king that's sitting there. And he says, do you believe their prophets? I know that you believe. Now, I don't know what you make of Agrippa's response in verse 28. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I take it to be mocking Paul. I take this to be a cynical response. Different translations uh, give this response as something like this. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? He's, he's saying, I, I'm just dismissing all of this. Words just as unfortunate. And as sad as not today, the words that Felix had given in response to Paul's preaching is to, you can't persuade me that easily. So Festus and Agrippa step aside and they decide that although Paul had done nothing that was worthy of death, because he's appealed to Caesar, that he should be held bound and that he should be sent to Rome. Now, the journey to Rome was quite a trip, and I'm not going to talk much about that. But he endured months of deprivation as a piece of human cargo, and he endured shipwreck, and he endured uh, a cold rain on this marooned on an island, and he endured, uh, he suffered a deadly snake bite and survived it, and he finally gets to Rome. And in Rome, he's under house arrest of sorts, but he has the opportunity to preach. Now, I was, in my mind, I was trying to think of what the greatest part of Paul's legacy is. Is it the churches that he founded? We, we don't really know. How many people have come to believe through the churches that he's founded, through his direct preaching? We don't know. But I think 
the letters that he writes to the churches that he had established are among the greatest contribution of any one man to the kingdom of God. And four of the letters that Paul writes were written here at Rome. Philippians and Colossians and the, the uh, book to Philemon and the second letter to Timothy were all written by him while he was in Rome. And Luke's record, Luke's record of the Acts of the Apostles closes with him preaching and teaching, living at his own hired house, living at his own expense, in other words, in Rome. Now it seems Paul realizes the positions he's in. He certainly knows of Nero's hatred for the Christians. And I've often wondered why Paul appealed to Caesar. Caesar, this was Nero. Nero's reputation had to be widespread, but he appealed to him. And I wonder if it wasn't because of Jesus' promise the one night when he stood by him and he said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou hast, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so thou must bear witness at Rome. So Paul had a confidence that he's going to get to Rome. And I wonder if he didn't see this as an opportunity and he didn't see the Lord's words as a, not just a prediction or a forecast, but as a command. This was Paul's responsibility. And so I wonder if Paul didn't sense that. And so he thought that perhaps an appeal to Rome might get him there. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking that. Now, the Martyr's Mirror states that most of the ancient writers are of the opinion that nearly all of his friends abandoned him in Rome. And I think those writers are right. It coincides with what... what uh, Paul writes to Timothy that he says, only Luke is with me. So here's, I, I don't know how many people had forsaken him, but it mentions Demas has forsaken him. But there's nobody with Paul except for Luke. And Luke is the one who's writing this. At any rate, Paul was eventually condemned to death by Nero that great persecutor of the Christians, he was beheaded outside the city of Rome in A.D. 69. Now, throughout this study in the book of Acts, I've, I've tried to help us understand what it means to be a witness for Christ, what it means to be a faithful witness, that we are called to stand in Jesus, to walk in Jesus' steps, where he said that, in, in the words that I opened the, the sermon with, that Jesus Christ is a faithful witness and he calls us to stand with him in being that faithful witness. At the beginning of the book are Jesus' words, you shall be witnesses unto me. To be a witness is to have personally seen or personally experienced. But there's another theme in this book, in this running throughout this passage, I believe, that we haven't given much thought. In Matthew's account of the Great Commission, this was not the same instance as Jesus' words in Acts 1. Because Matthew's 
account of the Great Commission took place in Galilee. And Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives in Judea, just outside of Jerusalem. But this is Matthew's account of the Great Commission. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, I think that the promise of Jesus' presence with them is what strengthened the apostles in their task. To the place where he calls, there he is. Where he calls, there he enables. We neither can nor should we want to do God's work without his presence. When God called Abraham out of Ur, he told him to get you up out of and, and leave your country. And, and I thought I could quote that. At any rate, that's in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12. To get up out of your kindred and go to a land where I show you. In, verse, in, in chapter 15, he says, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. God did not call Abraham to a place where he wouldn't be. God's words to Jacob and Bethel, Behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and I will bring thee again to this land. Where God calls, there he goes with you. Moses' words, when God told him to lead the children of Israel away from where they had received the law, and away from the place where they broke the law by worshiping the golden calf, and into, to, to lead them into the land of promise. He says, Moses' response was, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not hence. God's commands are clear, but he does not expect us to go alone. And we with Moses say we can't, we can't go by ourselves. I believe that God's presence and protection were certainly on the apostles' mind. Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Hebrews 13, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what... <coughs> Excuse me, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So here we have it. It's, it seems that we're either going to have our focus on God or man. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So when the world was pressing in and he was seemingly alone in the castle at Jerusalem, that was when the Lord promised him that he would bear witness at Rome. He says, be of good cheer. So what does Jesus' promise of his presence mean? Does it always mean something like the angel's promise when the Lord stood by him in the middle of the storm and the ship wrecked? Does it always mean something 
Let, let me say this again. Does, does Jesus' promise of protection always mean that you will be physically safe, that you will get to Rome? Does it always mean something like the angels promised in the middle of the storm that, that wrecked the, the ship that Paul was sailing on, where he said, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before the Gentiles, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall even be as it was told me. Does, does God's presence with us guarantee physical protection? Well, it can't mean that, else Paul would have been spared his head under Nero. Stephen wouldn't have been stoned, and James wouldn't have been killed by Herod. So I don't think it means that. But what does he mean when he says that he will always be with us? It may have something to do with his, with his incarnation, where Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. But I think it has more to do with Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on all flesh, where God has taken up residence within the believer. Our bodies as believers, think of this. If you can, I can't hardly, I can hardly deal with it. But God who made the heavens, God who was incarnate in Christ, dwells in us. God dwells within the body of the believer. I can't, I, I can't hardly wrap my mind around that. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. That is the Holy Spirit who is God dwelleth with you and shall be in you. His presence is within us. It gives us comfort and it gives us courage because he will never leave us. We don't have to fear what man can do. We should only fear God. The faithful Christian has a single eye. His focus is sharp and clear. It is only on what God wants. If your life is a picture, God's will is sharp and clear and the rest is blurred out and obscure and the, the rest only serves to contrast what's in focus. Jesus puts things in the right perspective when he says, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that can kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now, we may not be called to, be stand, to stand before kings and governors, but you may be called to do what's right, even when your friends don't 
So don't worry about what your friends think. Don't worry about what your friends think. Keep your mind clear about what's right and wrong. Keep your mind clear about who the judge of all the earth is. Keep your mind clear about who you are accountable to, your friends or God, God or man, who is with you, who is within you. He is with you. Those tests often come in the mundane and simple ways. But there may be a day, I don't know, when you are called to give an account for your faith before civil authority. I'd like to read you a letter that was written as a, um, an account of a young Mennonite boy in the First World War. Thinking of God with us and God helping us. I arrived at Camp Greenleaf, Georgia, September 8th, 1918. The previous night was spent on a train and was a new experience to me. Wickedness was rampant and the expressions were vile indeed, the worst that I ever heard. Once in camp, we were placed in tents. I soon explained my position to several of the officers, stating that I could not drill nor even work under the military establishment. One of them said, man, you will be proud of yourself. The two, the 250 men in our company soon knew me and passing their tents, I would hear shouts of shoot him, hang him, give us a sermon, come in and pray for us. He won't fight. He is yellow and many other unpleasant statements. As the company stood in lines for mess, some would give the signal that the preacher was there and then all would hurl some uncomfortable expressions at me. Rather than suffer this, I missed many meals. Numerous officers tried to get me to see, to see things from their point of view. I explained my position, but much as I longed for sympathy, I got none. While waiting, for the, while waiting in the examination hall one day, half a dozen lieutenants asked me a great many questions. They praised me for being so bright, but could not understand how one could have such a sound mind and could take up such a position. One of them pretended to be a Quaker and said, One time I believed much as you do, but I know better now. I was asked to don the uniform, and on refusing, they put it on me and sent my clothes home. I was asked again to drill, but refused. Two men pulled me out of my tent and held me in the ranks, trying to make me keep step. They tramped on my toes and kicked me. This treatment was kept up for about two weeks, but finding it of no avail, they let me go. Scoldings and cursings were frequent. I was asked to I was asked to help carry out several men on stretchers who were sick with influenza. I did so, but the Lord preserved me so that it, so that I did not get it. One day a sergeant took me to the bathhouse and tried to compel me to accept some kind of service. He slapped me in the face, struck me repeatedly with his fists and would catch me so that I could not so that I would not fall. He would wring my nose and pull my hair and strike my head against the wall. He kept up this treatment for some time, but when he saw that I would neither defend myself nor yield to accepting service, he let me go. I had a black eye and a swollen face for a week or more. Later was placed with other COs in about 
and in about four weeks from that time, the armistice was signed. A little while later, I was charged. To, I was transferred to Camp Sherman and was soon discharged. I learned many valuable lessons in camp, which are helpful to my religious experience. But I am perfectly willing to have no more trials of that same kind if it is satisfactory to my Lord. Praise him for his keeping and protection. This was in our land and not so long ago. What does God's keeping look like? What does his presence look like? It looks like grace to stand. It looks like enablement to do what's right. That's what God's presence is. Just like he was with the apostles. Just like he was from that time until now with the faithful, so he will be with you. He doesn't promise to keep us from difficulty. He promises to be with us in it. Jesus' words to his disciples just before his trial and crucifixion. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and now is, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus says he wasn't alone, and neither will you be. close with Paul's testimony while he was in Rome writing to Timothy he says for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand I have fought a good fight I have finished my course I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only. But unto all them also that love is appearing. Let's kneel for prayer.